We are drawing to the end of our study in Mark, looking at the person and purpose of Jesus. Our text for this evening is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 52. And tonight, as we move closer to the cross, we're moving from the events that happened right after the supper that we studied last week. And in this interlude between what we studied last week and what we're looking at tonight, Jesus tells all of his disciples, you will all fall away from me. And he tells Peter, you yourself will disown me three times this very night. And Peter insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same, Mark tells us. And so we move to the Garden of Gethsemane this evening where Jesus will agonize alone in prayer, asking God, is there any other way that we can do this together? And while he does that, his friends sleep And then Judas shows up to betray Jesus with a kiss. And then Jesus is arrested and begins his journey towards the cross that we're going to look at next week. So please uh, hear the word of our Lord from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 52. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi. And kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we come to this difficult passage tonight. It seems as though there is no hope in it, and there's only horror, horror that your son Jesus experienced uh, that the disciples experienced in fear and in deserting him. We pray that you would open 
your word to us, that by your spirit you would move and teach us this evening to gaze upon your son and his faithfulness for us and to see and wonder at his grace and mercy and his love for you and his obedience on our behalf. Meet with us, change us this evening. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen. The question I want us to consider this evening is how do we respond to Jesus as he's presented to us in this Bible? You know, some might be empathetic with Jesus, especially in this passage, really just sad for him um, because of his pain and his anguish. Some might be empathetic because we know what it's like to be abandoned and betrayed by those close to us. You know, some may really like Jesus' moral teaching that really isn't on display in this text, but, you know, we just love the idea of sacrifice and of loving your enemies and forgiveness. Um, His moral teaching is just, it's so good. Um, But when we hear the claims um, that he alone is the only way to be reconciled with God, uh, that he alone is the way and the truth and the life, that he came to die for sinners like us, that he's not just the Messiah, but he's really God himself, that's when some have problems. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this in his essay uh, from 1950, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ, about how people who actually interacted with Jesus really responded to him. This is what Lewis writes. He says, We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. So the question before us tonight is how do you respond to this Jesus? We're going to look tonight at how those closest to Jesus respond to him in this text, especially when deep distress faces them. Uh, There's no adoration in this text. There's only hatred, there's only terror, and there's only fleeing. Uh, We're going to look at just two things to help us see Jesus this evening and and our response to him. We're going to look at the faithlessness of the disciples, and then we're going to look at the faithfulness of Jesus. My hope for us tonight is really just as we gaze upon Jesus and we see the faithfulness that he exhibits on our behalf, that it would lead us not to terror, not to fleeing, not to hatred, but to adoration, to worship, that we would fall on our knees looking at his love and his faithfulness for us. Um, So that's where we're going this evening. So tonight we're just going to look at the faithlessness of the disciples and the faithfulness of Jesus. So first, the faithlessness of the disciples. Uh, As we mentioned right before this passage in verses 27 to 31, Jesus tells the disciples, you will all fall away from me. And he quotes from Zechariah 13, verse 7, that says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then he tells Peter, tonight, this very night, you will disown me three times. Peter again insists emphatically, it says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So we see here just moments before Jesus leads them into the garden Uh, to pray and to watch for this hour of betrayal and arrest that's coming that ultimately leads to Jesus enduring and dying on the cross. The disciples pledge their loyalty to Jesus. They're confident, they're brazen in their ability to remain with him despite what may come. And then they go into the garden with Jesus, it tells us. They've just had this big meal 
Remember, they've just eaten. It's late. Uh, it's been a pretty intense evening with Jesus. He told them that one of them is going to betray them. Um, he's, you know, not to mention how stressful it's been in the weeks leading up to this evening for Jesus and his friends. Um, and it's late. It's really late in the evening. Verse 39 tells us their eyes are heavy. So it's after midnight. Jesus brings them to the garden um, to sit with him while he prays. You know, this is the third time in the book of Mark where Jesus goes alone to pray. And this is the first time that we actually get to hear some of his words as he prays. And these prayers are always during really pivotal moments in Jesus' ministry. And none are more pivotal than this one. Um, and he takes the big three with him, right? He takes... Peter and James and John, the three that saw him raise Jairus' daughter, the three that he always took with him, the three that saw him in all of his glory at the transfiguration, the three that said they could handle whatever would come. Peter just said, I'll die with you. James and John earlier in chapter 10 say that they will drink the cup willingly that Jesus has before him. It's the very cup that in a few moments Jesus is going to beg God to take away from him. So these three, Jesus takes with him and he says, stay and keep watch. You know, keep watch harkens back to chapter 13 that Brad preached on a few weeks ago. It means stay awake. It means be spiritually alert and pay attention. It's that same admonition he gave earlier. It's the disposition that is needed when temptation and a time of testing comes. And Jesus knows that is what is in store for them. But then in verses 33 and 34, we read that when he takes the three... He begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. You know, these are really, really intense words. That mean that Jesus is astonished, that Jesus is overwhelmed with horror in this moment. And he says to his three closest friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus' whole demeanor changes in this moment. He's been up to this point authoritative, in charge, in control of every situation, confident. But as he heads to the cross, he becomes overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Peter and James and John, they can see it on his face. And even more than that, Jesus tells them how he's actually feeling. And so how do the disciples respond to Jesus' pain and his grief? They fall asleep. Verse 35 and 36, uh, Jesus goes off to pray, and when he returns in verse 37, he finds them sleeping. They can't stay awake to obey Jesus. And Jesus pointedly, when he comes back the first time, he asks Peter, you know, the one who just said that he'd die with him, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples, their intentions are good. Uh, in their heart of hearts, they really want to obey and be faithful to Jesus, but their immediate needs, uh, their immediate desires are too much, and it exposes their weakness, their faithlessness, and they fall asleep. And this happens three times in this passage. Um, verse 40 says, they did not know what to say to him after the, the second time. The disciples are ashamed, and we see their faithlessness here and their inability to stay awake and to even obey Jesus' small command here. And then we see another step of faithfulness in the, uh, faithlessness in the betrayal of Judas. Uh, Judas approaches Jesus as a friend uh, with this arresting party, this crowd that's sent from the Sanhedrin and the teachers and the elders. Um, and Judas comes, and he betrays Jesus with a friendly 
respectful, common greeting and a kiss. And it's with this sign of respect and love that he hands Jesus over to be arrested. You know, we talked about this last week. You know, we can think, Judas, you know, how could you have done this? You've been with Jesus for three years. You're one of his 12 best friends. You've heard his teaching. You've seen his miracles. You've seen him bring people back from the dead. And you're doing all of this for 30 pieces of silver? What's wrong with you? And Judas, Mark reminds us, is one of the 12 to highlight the depths of Judas's betrayal. And this friend of Jesus helps those that are planning on murdering and killing Jesus. Jesus isn't just forgotten and ignored and disobeyed by his friends. He's actually betrayed by them as well. And we'll see in verse 46 what happens next. The men seize Jesus and they arrest him. And then in verse 47, we read that one of those standing near uh, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The text says, one of those with Jesus. Well, we know from John's gospel that this is actually Peter. Um, But Mark doesn't name Peter here for us. Uh, We don't know why he doesn't, but it's pretty interesting that he doesn't say it was Peter. And it's pretty interesting that he doesn't say even that it's one of the 12. It's just one of those with Jesus. Why might Mark be doing that? It might be because that uh, the disciples here, they're not acting like disciples. Um, They're not acting like those that have spent time following and living and giving up everything to walk with this Jesus. And so this Jesus, the son of man, the one whom Peter and James of John have seen in all of his glory, the one that they confess is the Christ, the one that has a legion of angels at his disposal and can destroy his enemies in the blink of an eye if he wants to. He stands there and he lets all this happen that the scriptures might be fulfilled, we see. And Peter, kind of in this last ditch effort to prove to himself maybe or to those around him that he really is willing to die for Jesus and fight for him, he pulls out his knife and he strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. Peter thinks he actually needs to defend this Jesus that he needs to stick up for him and fight against his enemies for him. And then how does Jesus respond? It's amazing. He, he says, talking to the arresting party, but you really know that he's talking to Peter and he's talking to the 12. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Literally what Jesus is saying here is, am I a bandit? Am I a, a, an insurrectionist? Am I a terrorist? Um, haven't you heard me teach You've heard me in the temple courts. You've you've heard what I'm about. You should know better. You should know that I'm not going to fight back. I'm not leading a revolution like you expect. I'm not coming at you with swords and clubs trying to defeat you through violence. My kingdom comes through my death. My kingdom comes through loving my enemies, through forgiveness, through mercy and grace and sacrifice. And so Jesus confirms once and for all that he isn't the, insurrection, the insurrectionist that's come to overthrow Rome, to, to restore Jerusalem. And how do the disciples respond? Verse 50, everyone deserted him and fled. The prediction Jesus made just a few moments earlier comes true. The shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. Again, it's interesting to note that, that Mark doesn't say the disciples deserted him and fled. Um, Mark says everyone. 
It's to point out, again, that the disciples aren't acting like disciples, but it's to reinforce this fact that Jesus is totally and utterly alone in this moment. He's been deserted by everyone. Even this young man that Mark tells us is following after Jesus in this linen garment. Some scholars think that this is actually Mark himself, um, but we really don't know. Uh, When this young man is seized, and instead of staying with Jesus and suffering alongside him, he'd rather run off naked in the dark. The disciples, everyone, utterly and shamefully abandoned Jesus in this moment. Now, before we're too hard on the disciples and we're too hard on Judas or even this young man, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is this really who I am too? And I think if we're honest, if I'm honest with you, this is who we are in our heart of hearts. We too struggle to follow Jesus when we have competing desires, when we're too tired, when we don't feel like it, when we, feel, we don't feel like we really value what Jesus is calling us to, when life becomes too difficult and too hard and too painful, we'd rather tend to our own needs and ignore those around us. We disobey and we fall asleep. We see the pain and the consequences of our sin and we don't care. What we want to do is more important. We're only concerned with ourselves. We too struggle with our faithfulness and we prove ourselves to be faithless when we see that it might actually cost us something to be identified too closely with this Jesus. You know, that happens to us whether it's with our classmates or our coworkers or on the playground, whether it's in our jobs and it, um, it's, it's easier to get ahead by being dishonest or by putting someone else down to get what we want, or it's with our friends or our families. You know, we hear the, the questions and the accusations and we're tempted to compromise what it is that we really say we believe about Jesus and how he calls us to live. You know, we hear the accusations, you don't really believe this stuff, do you? You know, it's so arrogant of you to think that Jesus is really the only true God. There are so many other religions out there, and you believe in this ancient, antiquated, outdated, regressive, oppressive, misogynistic, patriarchal fairy tale. You really don't believe that stuff, do you? You know, we hear those, those arguments and those accusations, and we shrink away from Jesus. Or we might respond like Peter And we think Jesus needs us to lash out at his enemies on his behalf and violently attack them and take them down. You know, we might not use our swords, um, but we destroy and we malign with our words through our Facebook comments. Um, But Jesus is going to show us tonight through his faithfulness that God's ways are better, that they lead to life, that it's through not taking up our comforts and following him that we bring the kingdom into to being, but it's through taking up our crosses daily, through loving our enemies, through not being outstanding and awesome and doing great things for Jesus, but through quiet, unassuming, sacrificial, normal, boring, mundane faithfulness that we really usher in God's kingdom. Um, This really is a discouraging text so far. Um, We're brought low, 
But what's amazing here is this text isn't about how we need to feel terrible, how we need to expose and shame the disciples for their faithlessness, how we need to be exposed and shamed in our faithlessness. The focus of this text is not to humiliate us, but to look at the faithfulness of Jesus. So we're going to do that now, and hopefully we'll be much more encouraging as we go forward. Um, Here on the night of Jesus' arrest, The night before he goes to his crucifixion, we see Jesus coming to grips with the purpose of why he came. Up until this point, Jesus has been just cool and calm and collected and predicting his death three times. Um, He said earlier, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, Jesus knew the whole reason he was put on this earth was to come and to die for his people, was to gather his people through his death to give them the grace and the forgiveness and the life that they couldn't own and earn on their own. But as he draws near to his impending death, uh, William Lane says, Jesus staggers. If you look at Greek heroes like Socrates, um, he goes to his death with this cool in this dispassionate calmness. And if you look at the Jewish heroes around the time of Jesus, the Maccabeans, they go to their deaths with this fiery boldness and confidence. And if you look at the martyrs throughout the ages that die um, for their faith in Jesus, like Polycarp, uh, like Nicholas Ridley or Hugh Latimer or John Bradford, they go to their deaths confidently with a peace in their hearts, trusting that Jesus is going to be there to welcome them when they die. But that's not the case that we see here with Jesus. Why is that? Why is Jesus so distressed and troubled? Why is he horrified and astonished? Why is he overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Why is his affliction so great that he's literally sinking under the weight of it? It's because Jesus is experiencing something in this moment and he's about to experience something that those before him and those after him did not and could not and would not experience. And we're gonna get to that in in just a second. But here we see Jesus' faithfulness. In his moment of distress, we see where does Jesus go? Jesus goes to the one person that he has had in a deep and intimate and glorious relationship with. He goes to his father in prayer, and he goes before him honestly. Jesus doesn't hide his grief. He doesn't hide his desires. He goes before him honestly. He doesn't resign himself to just mindlessly following God's will. He knows that prayer isn't about bending God to our will, but it's about willfully submitting ourselves to his will. And he goes to God as Abba, Father. This is a term of endearment. It's a rich and intimate uh, word here that Jesus uses. And no one, no one before Jesus approached God in this way. In Jesus' distress, he turns to his Father in prayer and he honestly cries out. Hebrews 5, 7 calls back to this moment and when the writer says this, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus prays three times in this passage with loud cries and tears, trusting God and his goodness and his faithfulness. He says, everything is possible for you, God. And it's here that we see why Jesus staggers. Jesus prays, take this cup from me. 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knows that this cup is coming. This, is, this cup that he's going to have to drink is the cup of God's wrath, and he does not deserve it. This is the cup that Isaiah 51 says, the cup of his wrath you've drained to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup that Ezekiel 23 describes as a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn in derision, for it holds so much. The cup of ruin and desolation, you will drink it and drain it dry. Jesus knows this is the cup that is coming for him. He's not staggering at the thought of the physical pain and the physical death that he's about to endure. He's staggering because of the spiritual torment that he is enduring and that he knows he's about to endure because he's about to drink this cup to the dregs. He's had a perfect more intimate than anything we can ever imagine relationship with the Father from eternity past. And Jesus knows that it is about to be severed. He anticipates that he's going to cry out with Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He anticipates that the Father is going to turn his face away from him on the cross, the, only, the one that has only done that which his Father desires, the one who's perfectly loved God and his neighbor, the one in whom there's no fault or wickedness, is about to become our sin, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He's about to become our sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew He's about to experience the fullness of hell, the complete and utter separation from God, and that is why he staggers. When Jesus prays, instead of hearing, my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased, as he's used to hearing when he goes before his father, as he's used to feeling, he instead has hell open before him, and he staggers. Jesus asks God, is there any way that we can do this? Is there any other way? And if there is, can we please do that? Jesus doesn't hide his feelings. He doesn't hide his anguish. He's honest in it. But then we see Jesus turn and Jesus willfully and obediently submits his desires to not experience the pain and the suffering that he knows it's going to cost to rescue us for himself. And he aligns his desires with his father's. So he prays and he humbly submits himself to, to obeying God and he says, not what I will, but what you will. And then we see Jesus' faithfulness continue. He returns to his friends and they're failing him. They're sleeping. He asks them to do one thing and they're not doing it and Jesus is faithfully loving and serving them still. He encourages them to watch and to pray so they will not fall into temptation. Jesus, even in the midst of his suffering and his moments of desperate grief alone in the garden, is not concerned primarily with himself but with his friends. He says, your moment of testing is coming. You'll not have the strength. You need to pray Stay awake and pray. And then after the third time of doing this, he prays and he comes back to his friends and he says, enough. Jesus isn't angry with them for sleeping at this moment. He says, enough. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. When he says enough, what he's saying there is it's resolved. It's decided. The matter I've been praying and agonizing over, it's been settled. I'm going to be handed over to sinners. There's no other way. In order for you who fail and betray and desert me to be forgiven and to be shown mercy and to be brought into my family, I have to go to the cross. 
And then how does Jesus respond after that? He doesn't, he's not staggering anymore. Jesus turns and confidently walks towards his enemies. He doesn't shy away from them. Jesus has every opportunity to give up, every opportunity to turn away, every opportunity to, to quit on us and to shame his disciples and to quit on all of us. And yet he doesn't because he loves us. Because he knows that the desires that he and his father have are stronger than his desire to to get out of this situation. And so he knows the purpose for which I came is to suffer and to die for my people. And I'm going to do it. And it's in this moment that the garden of horror becomes the garden of hope for us. Everyone deserts Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. A young man flees naked and ashamed rather than being faithful to Jesus. And this should remind us of another garden. The Garden of Eden at the beginning of Genesis where Adam is told, Obey me and live. And because of his faithlessness he brings in his rebellion, he brings death to us all because he wanted to do what he thought was best. And Adam leaves naked and ashamed. And in this garden, Jesus is told, Obey me and you'll be crushed. And in his submission to God in this garden, he reverses the pattern of rebellion through his faithfulness. And Jesus sets into motion the sequence of events that are going to destroy and defeat death itself forever and bring us to himself. So what does looking at the faithfulness of Jesus in the garden drive us to? How does it cause us to respond to this one who faithfully submits himself to an unjust death so that through his death he might bring life to many. We can't just see Jesus as an example for us of how we're called to be faithful. We need to be faithful because God is faithful. That is not what we need to see in this passage because if that is what we take away, we are going to be crushed under the weight of that. We, sh- we should see Yes, it's true. We should see that, that if Jesus runs to God in his deepest moments of despair, how much more should we fallen and broken and desperate and needy people run to God in our moments of trial? That's true. And we should also see that even Jesus is told no by God in prayer. And so when we're told no by God in prayer, how much more do we need to align our hearts and our desires with God's when they don't match up? But the reality is for us, we can't just look at Jesus like an example here because we, like the disciples, can't do it. We're faithless. Apart from God's grace, we can't do it. The answer isn't try harder, be more faithful. We can't do it. We need Jesus to be faithful for us. We need to see the beauty of his love and his sacrifice for us, the depths that he would go so that we would never know God's punishment, that it would fall all and solely upon Jesus so that it would never come near to us. We need to see Jesus snatching the cup of God's wrath away from us so that he might drain it to the dregs so that we could know through his experience of of separation from God that we would never know God having to turn his face away from us so that when God turns his face away from Jesus and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we come to Jesus in faith, we never have that experience. God is always with us. God is always present with us. He doesn't turn his face away from us. He's not disappointed in us if we're his. He's not angry with us. He's not waiting for us to get our acts together. He loves us. When he sees us, if we are his, he sees Jesus 
Paul, we, we said it earlier, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became everything that we are, sinners, broken, idolaters, uh, adulterers, murderers, thieves, faithless people, so that we could become faithful, so that when God looks at us, he would see his son Jesus and he would celebrate and he would say, there is my faithful child, there is my perfect, obedient, loving, holy, wonderful child, that is mine. That's what happens when Jesus goes to the cross for us. So we need to see this evening the faithfulness of Jesus and that should drive us to think about, okay, how do I respond to this Jesus? Do I adore him? Do I see the beauty and the love that he has shown for me? And do I worship him? That's what he's calling us to. His horror becomes our hope. May we look upon him and may we wonder at his faithfulness and may that drive us to see our need of him in the midst of our faithlessness and adore him and worship him this evening. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that Jesus remained faithful for us and went to the cross so that we might be yours. We are confused uh, and weary and broken and tired, but we know that we are not alone because Jesus was alone for us on the cross. And so we have you and you love us, and you have been faithful for us, and help us to see and live out of the reality that if we are yours, that when you look at us, you actually see Jesus. We are covered in his robes of righteousness. We are loved to the same degree that you love him. Father, help us to see that and to adore you this night and every night. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.